want to, in as much as novels ever want to do those things, or writers want to do those things, but that 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 constantly stabilising of of our certainty to knock us off balance to make us sort of think a bit harder. Right? I, I I hope so, and I think so. I mean, there there are all questions I think about quite a bit. I guess every question in here is one I'm not able to answer, you know, <laughs> and that's why they're that's why they were so interesting to live with for such a long time. I mean, the questions about cultural relativism, about you know, children's sexuality, about scientific progress, about you know what a good person is, about whether a person's accomplishments can ever be accurately or even should be weighed and measured against their failures. I mean, I, I think these are all questions that I think about all the time, and I think that we all do in, in ways that are perhaps not perhaps on the forefront of our mind. Does your own job, does, do you think that gives you an enhanced sense of that? Not most... really. I think of my work in very... I, I think of my work in very uh, literal terms. You know, I mean, I'm there to provide information for a certain type of reader and that reader wants information about where to stay and where to go so it's very workmanlike and I like that I actually don't mean that in a bad way it's um, you know if I if I started thinking this way in terms of offering information to people I think I'd be very I wouldn't be doing anyone a real service so it's, it's good to have one aspect of your life in which you actually are offering useful information, and another aspect of your life in which you're offering no information at all. Yeah, exactly. Which you're offering no information at all. Just questions, but no answers. So it's it's very enjoyable that way, having something that's so literal to um, to, to hold on to and to keep keep, keep one anchored in in sort of facts and figures of the world. Today. How about balancing the two halves of your writing life? Did I, did I remember being given advice by of all people, Jeffrey Archer? You tell me the best, the best way to, to write. Who know, right? Yeah, who know. If you write in one half of your life, it makes the idea of say writing a novel very, very difficult. That you should be doing something. That you should have another job, and that's very important. But for you, how do you balance if you're writing it's all the time? Very easy. I mean, I the second book that I just finished, as this one was coming out in the states, I was very. When you have a day job, whether it's writing or something else, it makes your free hours very precious, and it makes you very disciplined within right. them. So I wrote for three hours a day, and then six hours Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's very, very easy to talk over between the two, actually. You know, they're so different that I think it would be much more difficult if you're working for some place like The New Yorker, or where the writing in and of itself is, I think, much more philosophical and craft-like. When you're writing much more literally, it's very easy to, to you know, to turn off, to turn off and on. You know, it's I guess it's the difference between it's like musicians who you know make their make their income playing at weddings, you know, and then they can go off, or composers, and then they okay. can go off on their own time and, and and indulge whatever they want to do. So it becomes a much more indulgent process, and that's very nice actually. So the second novel, having spent. You said uh, 16? 16 years, yeah. So the, sec- the second novel has been written much quicker? 18 months, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Is that... Why do you think that was? Was it, was it, a, is it a different sort of project? No, I knew, I knew what I was going to do with the second one. I've been thinking about it for a very long time. So when I actually started writing it, I knew everything. I knew exactly where I was going, every single step. Wow. And the other thing is, once you've written one, it's easier to write the second. You know, I mean, you just know you can. It, because so much of writing is not the actual fun parts that we get to discuss. It's the sitting there and the actual or putting the words down and the mechanics of it. And once you know, it, it's, it's like being a long-distance swimmer or runner. It's pacing. And so once you can figure that out, how you best work, how far you can push yourself, it becomes a much more... Um, it's, it becomes 
an act of techno technical virtuosity rather than, you know, thinking, really. And was there, I mean, other than your own travel, was there a lot of research, say, for this? Is, uh... For this one, for the science parts, yes. Okay. And that was really fun, actually. You know, I, 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 my father gave me a lot of information about killing mice and about being in a lab. I remember going to his lab at NIH and seeing the mice in their cages and the dogs and the monkeys. And I remember the stench of it. Um, and it was very... And, and I also loved the life of the lab. And in a way, that's meant to echo... It's supposed to be as strange and specific a society as later the life on the island, and then in third time again, the life in Norton's home. I mean, they're all three strange subcultures. And the life at the lab is a very distinct life. You know, I mean, there's a certain hierarchy of people, almost like a village. Um, there's rituals. There's, you know, ways of being. There's their own, your own weaponry, as you were. You know? And it's a very odd place for people who have never been there. There's its own language. So it would be, in a sense, one would feel very comfortable in a very small, close society because it was comfortable in a lab. The, the description of, I think he says, I, enjoy, I enjoyed ki yeah. killing the mice. Yeah. And actually sort of yeah. swirling them around. Is yes. that actually... Uh... Yeah, so my father described that to me. He described that to me in the dog killing. So he said, you know, that's what you do. You, you just stand there with your colleagues chatting twirling the mice and you put them down and pull up in the tail and their neck would break you toss it aside and you start killing the next one and you know this could go on for some time and then the dog the dog experimentation was also something that he taught me about about replacing what kind of transplant work Norton might have been doing in the 50s and you know you also realize because it was the 50s the, the late 40s I guess when, when he was working it was really when science was, was shifting and a lot of but, you know, immunology didn't exist, really, not as we know it. Genetics didn't exist as we know it. And so a lot of things that we now take for granted were maybe about 15 years off. Right. So, you know, the idea of what cancer was, which, you know, is still a question we're asking. I mean, you really see how science, like literature, like art, is in itself, you know, long continuing of a tradition with each generation building on the mistakes and the findings, findings of the next. Um, and that's really how it works, this cumulative sort of accretion of knowledge. And so it was, it was very enjoyable talking to him about what a lab in the 50s would have been like, and the characters who would have been there. You know, as I said, it was the time when science became modern, but before that time, you know, even Feynman, as I think Parana says, was expected to be a member of society. You couldn't just be all Asperger'd out and crazy and, you know, muttering to yourself the way you can now. I mean, you really had to be presentable. And that was also kind of something that was interesting to me about even within this contained world, there were the rules of the outside world still impose themselves. In a also, way, I think they don't now. It was interesting how the degree to which the majority of science were immigrants to America, Norton himself, yeah. at his long-term lab yeah. system was Korean. Yeah. And I guess the more charitable way to say it is that there is... The nice thing is, too, there's a whole tradition of I mean, it's a very international community. When I was young, um, and my father was a fellow at um, a cancer hospital in New York called Memorial, there was a building for all the fellows and residents that everyone lived in, and they were from all over. So it was very much like a university. It was a university setting, and there really were people from maybe 20 or 30 countries there to study, and then they or get their post-fellowship degrees, and then they all scattered and went back to their home countries. And there is this great network of people who worked in a lab together, you know, and um, it is very much like being a fellow at a college, and then afterwards you scatter, and, you know, my uncle, for example, um, is on his, his sabbatical, he's a virologist himself, and he's on the sabbatical now where he's just hopping along to different 
labs to sort of sit in and oh. lend a hand, like being a chef almost. You know, you meet a bunch of different chefs, and then sometimes you go and you work in their labs just on the sabbatical, just to catch up on old times. You knew them when you were in your twenties, and you were all doing grunt work at the lab together. And now they're running labs of their own, and you know, it's it's a whole constellation of these tiny villages that you're familiar, and the language of all of them is the same. You know, you know the you know the accessories, you know the um, you know how to behave in them, you know what they're doing. It's a language that really is, that second language, as I was saying, the language of science is the language that all of these people speak, no matter where they are. So that's the nice part about those international yeah, yeah. labs. You can always go anywhere and feel at home to some extent. The novel's been out for a while in America. Perhaps starting with your father, um, I was wondering what the kind of response, if, if, he's, if, if your parents have, have read it. My parents haven't read it. You know, my not? father read the science part for fact-checking purposes, um, and he enjoyed it. You know, I mean, he always says I'm scientifically illiterate, so he had a good time reading it, <laughs> which I am, and I say that with no... I mean, I'm very embarrassed about it by it. But anyway, I, um, I haven't read any of the reviews um, okay. yeah, and I, or anything about it, so I don't really know how people have responded to it. It's a couple of my co-workers have read it and seem slightly troubled and uncertain how to act around me afterwards. When someone, if you know them quite well and you've been writing this novel, almost like a, a sort of secret with yourself. Right. right. And then it, it has sort of explosive, you know, and again, I mean this in a, in a crude way, you, you, but, um, yeah, sort of troubling, disturbing right. material. Do you, I mean, how... <laughs> is this the way that people sort of think, my God, what's going on in a... In, well, in, in, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I do think that... <laughs> I do think there is some of that, yes. I mean, I'm very flippant at work, and, you know, I can be counted on, you know, to make sort of... I, I have a certain persona there, and I think, it, I think it was unnerving for people, A, to realize they've been working on this for so long in secret, because it's always unnerving to realize people have been working on something in secret. And B for them to read it. So the, the response has not been, no one said that they, no one said they really loved it, but I was, I'm always grateful when people read it carefully and intelligently, and that's all you can really do. I was speaking to France on the way here, and I said, I love the book. I said, actually, I don't think love is the, is the word, and I don't mean that in any way yeah, that no, I, no, no, I or the enjoy is in the book, because it's a, it's, a, it's a... I mean, I don't love the book either. I didn't uh, love writing it. I didn't love... No, it's Norton that I don't love. It's, it's, it's a very brave thing to have someone who's not right. very likable. Right, but he's compelling, and, you know, I certainly... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would want to have dinner with him, probably. I don't know that I'd want to be a child in his household, but that's the other thing. You had asked him why it took so long and what it was like at the beginning. And when I look back at those earlier drafts, the sort of authorial disdain that I had for him, I think, was so heavy and so apparent. And it lessened over time. And he was someone I grew to understand and feel sympathy for. Um, and I think that you can't write a character if you hate them um, and if you are repulsed by them. And, um, and that's why that earlier iteration book would never have been successful. I mean, he was a really... I don't think of him as a loathsome character, and I think of him as a very limited character and a very sad one in a lot of ways. But I think making people or characters into monsters serves no one, and it means that you don't really 
it's too easy a way to dismiss someone, um, yeah, whether the, on the page or in person. So what? So there is a there's a new novel. Am I allowed to ask what sure. the novel's about? I mean, it's about male friendship. It's very different from this one. It's about four male friends in New York in an unnamed time, but it's slightly in the future, and they age from they age from 25 to 50. So it covers a period of 25 years. It was. I loved writing it, and I really love this one. So we'll see. It's it's. There's a similarity about a sort of male collusive. I guess so. Uh, I guess so. I mean, you know, it's interesting to write as men as a male voice because there's so many things that I think men aren't allowed to access in society, emotionally, linguistically, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a, they have a much more limited emotional palette to work with, um, whether they're gay or straight or young or old. I think less so maybe for 20 year olds nowadays, but. Still, to some extent, there's many things men aren't allowed to do and aren't allowed to express and aren't allowed to say. And it's in that lack of expression, that inability to say certain things, that horrible rage comes out, I think, and that destruction happens. Women can talk about anything. I mean, it's one of the great parts about being a woman, both on the page again and in person. You can, I always say, you know, I can talk about my friends, you know, with my female friends, you know, from everything, you know, from makeup to you know the Middle East, but you can't with men, and it's it's very very hard for them, I think. Yeah. So working in within the boundaries, the confines of what they're allowed is, is an interesting space to work in as a writer. I think. And is that where fiction can go in too? I mean, you're saying that the books are absolutely, books yeah, yes. I mean, and you know, and also is working with a limited character, a group of person, a group of people. In this case, men. I think um, is means that you can spend a lot of time sort of worming into the small spaces, the dark spaces, the unfilled spaces, um, and give them language they wouldn't normally give themselves. You know? So it's been great working on it. I've really, it's one of my favorite novels that I've oh, played. It's James, going to be thank you so much. Uh, it's thank an you. Extra, really, really extraordinary thank novel. Thank you so, so much. Uh, it's, it's a huge pleasure.